Welcome to the fourth installment of the Wealth Creation Podcast Series. In today's episode, I'm joined by Kyle Lassero, a portfolio manager, and Mark Felder, a fund manager, both from Investec Wealth and Investments. Today, we answer a question that I'm sure most of us have already asked ourselves at some stage, or we might be asking ourselves at some point in the future. And that is, is property the right investment for you? Kyle and Mark are going to be taking us through what to look at when we're buying property, how to think of property in the context of the rest of your investment portfolio, and the dynamics between different types of property, such as residential, commercial, office, and of course, investing in property offshore and internationally. We'll close off the conversation by talking about some of the risks of investing in property and the key pitfalls one might want to consider. It's sure to be a rather insightful conversation, and uh, so please do stay tuned. Mark, I'll kick things off with you. When you were in high school, were already reading, I guess, the business news. Uh, you'd already gotten some interest already. Um, and I must say, we're quite excited about the stockbroking industry and uh, were triggered by the 1987 market collapse. Now, I wasn't born in 1987, so you might maybe want to tell us a bit more about what happened then and how that segued you into a career in investing. Hi, thank you, Ibonga. Yeah. I suppose as a youngster living through that market crash of 87, although I wasn't involved in the markets at all, so please don't put me into that age bracket. You know, there were, <laughs> there were some seminal movies that came out around Wall Street at the time. And I just remember the flurry and, and the haste and the excitement and, and the buzz, although mainly negative, obviously, given the market circumstances that prevailed at the time and really did bite me as such and sparked an interest in me as a young boy um, or moving into teenagehood. And so I started investing at a fairly young age in unit trusts with the wages that I'd accumulated over time. And, and I suppose, you know, through other podcasts, you may have picked up that the earlier you get going with your investment, the better, the better the ability for that investment to compound. And so it was that when I left uh, university, and I needed to buy my first car. Those investments came through and actually provided me with a very nice deposit on what I considered to be a magnificent car at the time. And I guess 25 years later, Mark, you know, from when you formally started, you're still in the markets. And uh, we'll come back to some of the, I guess, big lessons that you've learned in particular about property as an asset class in that quarter of a century of an innings out in the markets. Kyle, let, let me bring you in because you also... I guess, have a similar journey into the marketplace. You started off with penny stocks. You've also had a short gap year teaching English in a monastery in Nepal and also studied martial arts in the Shaolin Academy in China. Uh, so certainly not the kind of guy you want to mess with here. Kyle, just some of your own journey and more importantly, I guess, the seminal role of rich dad, poor dad in your interest and journey in the markets. Yeah, thanks for that. I actually started my journey in finance in, in high school. I was pushed by my dad to get involved with trading shares and, and learning about the markets in, in about grade eight, grade nine. I can't remember exactly when. And for one of my birthdays, he actually opened up a share trading account and uh, asked me to, to get involved. You know, and, and at that age, you didn't know much but uh, you, you tried your best to, to make a lot of money quickly. And uh, that's where I started in investing in um, penny 
type stocks. So these would be shares that would trade at like 50 cents or less. And you'd see them go up 50% in one day, down in 80% the next day. And I thought that that really excited me. Obviously, it, it didn't really work very well. Uh, I like to think that I use technical analysis to find opportunities, but really it, it was gambling <laughs> in a sense. But it was only during uh, Varsity where I started to really get involved in investing at a fundamental level. So we started uh, learning about uh, you know, the intelligent investor, reading books like the Buffett way. And that really grew my understanding about how these shares traded. Great. And real pleasure to meet the pair of you, because uh, today you're going to be walking me through what are some of the considerations we think about when we think about property. And Mark, I want to start off just with you. What are some of the characteristics of a particular property or what considerations should we factor into, you know, our decision making mix? When we think about buying a property, I mean, there's so much that happens in the press, as you were saying, people talking about real estate, investment, trusts in the listed space, and it can get very, very confusing. So let's maybe just start off first principles. What are some of the things that we consider? And more importantly, what are the differences in our decision making mix between listed property and maybe considering property in the unlisted space? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And maybe if we just take it one step further back. And just recognize that, you know, property inherently is or provides you with shelter. And, and that's one of man's uh, primary drivers, you know, to seek out shelter. So we, I think we need to divorce the investment in property from living in a property, buying a property for financial gain versus buying a property to have that shelter and the security place to raise a family. And, you know, although we can't discard the fact that you can make a profit, primarily a capital profit off your residential property, I think most people ultimately make that investment decision on comfort levels and the security that that property provides. So, you know, potentially we should, we should stay away from that and stay away from including that primary residential property in the whole asset mix and, and in the decision making that you ultimately make around the investments. Secondly, a lot of people, especially um, the, the client base that we would be speaking to, would have a second recreational property, a holiday home, maybe it's a timeshare or a dedicated week somewhere in the bush. And I think to a large extent, that also isn't really an investment property. That's, that's a lifestyle asset. And the financial metrics around that, I think, are really an allocation of surplus funds to that asset with no real intention of making a return. Probably about 10, 15 years ago, I went out and bought a residential property that I had the, the sole intention of renting out and trying to make a return. And I suppose that's where a lot of people would get started when it comes to property. And, uh, you know, Carl alluded to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki and access to passive income. And that is, in my mind, the most primitive primary source of generating that primary income. I mean, it, it does come with quite a few risks, tenant risks, location risks, et cetera, et cetera. But, but ultimately, I think that's a good place to start with a property investment. For ease of use, though, it is much quicker and transactionally cheaper to buy into a listed property structure 
where you have a hopefully a, a highly competent and incentivized management team that actually make those decisions for you. And through scale and aggregation, you actually have big instruments listed that can acquire significant property portfolios. And, and what we find is those property portfolios are typically focused in the retail space, owning big shopping centers and also um, strip malls and smaller shopping centers, office space and industrial businesses. And I think the, the purpose of those structures, uh, very similar to investing directly into a rental property yourself, is ultimately to make capital return, but as importantly on an annual basis to actually get an income off that asset. And I think those are the two cornerstones of a property investment is you, you've got to look at that total return, but ultimately recognize that a significant portion of that total return may come in the form of a taxable distribution. And if we look back over time, um, it's been a volatile market of late, yes. But on average, um, since, uh, since the listing of the index, the return profile has been approximately half distribution and half capital. And I think when people make investments into, into this asset class, that is the mindset that they should have. But ultimately, total return is, is what you're driving after. You mentioned something very interesting there you know, around the, I guess, more commercial property strip malls. And, and I would venture to add even, you know, the office and even, I guess, the retail elements to that. And Kyle, when we think about those property segments, just outside of the residential space for a second, or even other sort of offshore markets like, you know, hotels, massive boom at the moment in, you know, uh, a storage, um, there's even, I guess, data centers and even network towers and the like. Are the considerations in any way different from what, you know, Mark has, has spoken us through, which is really around, I guess, the capital gain, uh, but also potentially some of the liquidity that comes from distributions? Yes, definitely. It's actually, it's one of the uh, factors, the key factors that makes this asset class so exciting is how differentiated it is. There's so many different sectors within the property sector itself, so many different factors that affect different property holdings. For example, uh, the, the main one is obviously residential. We all have our own view on owning our own property. And now in, in, in a world where remote working is uh, definitely a reality that we could find ourselves in for you know for the foreseeable future it it changes the view a bit on residential for example you know you don't have to work in the big city centers to to be close to work you you can work just as easily on the coast in a small town and work for one of the biggest corporations in a country or even in the world so there are different factors when you do consider investing in property. But what you're speaking about is the different types of property that you can hold and how they they affect you. So, for example, during the uh, COVID pandemic, what we did see is that hotels really did take a knock. This is obviously because tourism took a major knock. Not many people were flying into the country, going to the beaches, you know, visiting, going on safari. But if you look at property sectors that did do well, it's things like data centers. Everyone was going on to, you know, on to using Zoom, using Microsoft Teams. The data usage was extreme. The whole world went through a, a revamp. So those sectors did really well. They gave really nice high dividend yields during that time. So if you 
see those different areas of the market and you actually think, well, I can do well in different cycles. It, it means that the diversity that you get when investing in the property sector can be quite a, a big contributor to your total return, which Mark was referring to in, in the comments he just made. I like the point you're raising around diversification. And we're going to come back to, I guess, what it means in one's broader portfolio mix. But Mark, let me bring you in here. In one's broad portfolio, I mean, the fact that you have different property types with different drivers of payoffs, how does that influence, I guess, diversification within property as an asset class? And also this mix between sort of leasehold property and maybe titled property. Excellent points. I mean, we, we didn't really touch on it earlier. And uh, if you speak to an estate agent and you're buying a residential property, they say, say there are only three important things. It's location, location, location. But obviously that can also play against you because if you get the location wrong and you've got a single asset as a residential property, you may find yourself in, in trouble. And we have seen a lot of that in, in Gauteng inner cities and the peripheral suburbs around those and so diversification becomes very important. And, and also in the context of listed companies, you can also develop a portfolio of diversified property investments. And the way that we think about that, or the way that I think about that, is firstly, just in, in terms of a macro structure and the framework in which you're investing, is to identify uh, sectorial opportunities and tilt your portfolios towards those. So, you know, we're talking about COVID and, and the impact that it had on data centers. And, and Carl was making an excellent point that there was a great opportunity there. The other side of the same coin is office space has been under a lot of pressure. And it's been under a lot of pressure because of the work from home uh, situation that we experience. Not to say that office space is dead and it will never come back. But the opportunity may have been lost if you weren't diversified in your portfolio and you didn't have the sectorial split, you know, with access to, to a specialized asset class, which you also mentioned earlier being storage. Storage in itself, self-storage in particular, very interesting market and it has a very interesting dynamic. And from a macro sense, it, it isn't linked to what we would see in something like a retail space. So having a shopping center and owning a, a portion of a shopping center through a listed structure and owning self-storage counterbalances a lot of the macro risks that you would encounter in an environment. So that diversification that you want to put into your investment needs to consider diversification of the, the sub-sectors within property, the location of property, um, and, and also to a large degree, the management teams. And, and all of that becomes very important in, in constructing a portfolio. But we also can't underemphasize the importance of the capital structure of the businesses that you're buying and diversifying all of these things within a portfolio, uh, we, we strongly believe reduces the overall risk that you're taking and exposed to in the property market and at the same time should still give you good returns. So just to expand on that slightly further, there's no reason why you shouldn't hold a property investment for capital return only. But at the same time, it's quite prudent to diversify that type of investment with an investment where you know that there's a quite a significant yield coming off the, the property portfolio and that's paying back to you, providing you with some liquidity. Those two held in combination in the portfolio, I think, give you a much sounder investment platform than just taking on one of those investments. So diversification is key inside 
inside the property sector. And we're very fortunate in South Africa that we've got a large listed property sector and there's large diversification through through those listings into the, the primary retail, office and industrial sectors. But also very importantly, big acquisitions have been made over the last decade into international assets. So as well as having only access to South Africa for diversification, we have significant access to offshore assets through onshore listed structures, which makes my work um, a little bit easier. It gives me a bigger opportunity set and diversification uh, through the portfolio is less challenging than it was a decade ago. Thanks for that remark, because I guess it makes for a perfect segue into my next question to Kyle. You know, Kyle, I guess the same considerations that Mark has painted for us within the asset class of property would apply when you are thinking about your broader portfolio and the configuration of different asset types inside of that uh, portfolio. I mean, I'm quite interested in sort of what, what type of position property holds in relation to, say, other asset classes. And more importantly, how does it stand up uh, to some of the risks that one might face for their portfolio over time? Chief among those, of course, being inflation or the rate of change in prices over time. Yeah, so just drawing on what Mark just said, what makes his uh, job a bit easier makes our job a little bit harder. When um, what you've started to see is a few of these uh, property stocks going offshore and buying property. When when you think about it in a portfolio context, what that means is you getting some offshore exposure within your property sector. So you have to take into account the um, currency risk. You know, if your property is earning some of its return in euros and uh, and some of its return in uh, South African rands, it means it's a very different uh, asset class to if uh, the property position only was uh, earning its returns in rand. So you have to take that into account when you build up your portfolio and include property in it. So the way we look at property from a multi asset approach is we, we see the property sector holistically. And we ask the question, well, how does this sector or asset class fit in between equities? How does it fit with the fixed income? And how do we position it so that the diversification benefit really plays a, its part in the uh, portfolio? So the one of the key considerations when you look at property in a portfolio is it it does bring in a characteristic that is that adds a lot of value and is quite relevant it is its hedge against inflation so what happens with property stocks is as uh, prices increase which which is called inflation you tend to have the property portfolios increase their rentals so that means that as property rent increases, it feeds into the overall investor's portfolio and it leads to an increase in dividend yields, which kind of hedges you against the inflation uh, exposure. Yeah, Carl, I, th- I think that's absolutely dead right. You know, you've got escalation clauses built into these uh, listed property companies. In Europe, those are very much indexed against prevailing inflation rates. In South Africa, they typically are a, a fixed rate, but at or higher than inflation. And that inflates your distribution off the asset in time, which ultimately means you have that inflation hedge. But one also needs to remember that the value of the asset is also determined by its replacement cost. 
And as you see in inflationary environments in an economy, the replacement cost of uh, the bricks and mortar as such also escalate. So, so there are two aspects there that provide you in a normalized environment some kind of protection against inflation on a cash flow basis as well as on a replacement basis. So when you're looking at the net asset value of these businesses. So I mean, a very good point then in terms of the way that it hedges and it hedges both on a capital and on an income basis. I find this very interesting. And, and I'm going to come back, I guess, you know, to you, Kyle, as well, before we come to what I also see as a big element, uh, at least of all in low interest rate environment, which is the role of gearing or the role of debt, not only in the acquisition of property, but also, I guess, in the investments in the listed space. But before we go there, just the tax implications of different approaches as we think about diversifying our portfolios. Mark? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we've got structures that we have mimicked from the, the UK and in uh, Australia and South Africa uh, called real estate investment trusts, which give you a very interesting tax situation globally where you have a pass-through mechanism. Um, so all of the profitability earned within these property companies effectively are paid out to shareholders without the corporation or, or the real estate investment trust, the REIT, incurring any tax. There are some parameters and regulations around how that mechanism works, but effectively that income then comes through to the investor and is included in their gross taxable income. So unlike an equity where you're receiving a dividend and paying a dividend withholdings tax, um, in the property listed property space, on most of the instruments, you're picking up a distribution, which is fully taxable. And I, I think that leads quite nicely into your, into your comments around gearing. It effectively means that these REITs through acquisition like to have a reasonable split between debt and equity in the financing of, of those transactions. And that in itself does magnify the return that gets passed through to shareholders. So you get all of the benefits of gearing coming through, both positive and negative, one must say. And provided you have a solid management team in place that looks after that capital structure and doesn't take on too much debt and the debt servicing costs don't become an issue, you actually get quite a nice magnification of the operating earnings within the business as they pass through into the distribution. Quite interestingly, though, Ibonga, what we do see from our client base is another level of gearing coming in, which is clients recognizing that they're receiving taxable income. And to mitigate some of the taxability of that income, putting gearing into the structure that they hold that investment in and creating a tax buffer on the income that comes through. And effectively, their the mechanisms to put these portfolios together in such a way that they're cash flow neutral and ultimately the distributions are paying for the interest and you've got additional property exposure through the gearing. And what we've seen over an extended period of time is significant wealth creation through these structures, where, as I suggested much earlier in the conversation, you have this prospect of capital return coming through. So, so there, there are two ways of playing the, the taxability of these structures. Firstly, inside the REIT itself, and then secondly, in the portfolio. And, and I suspect what's happened as we've seen market corrections in 2018 and again last year in 2020 is a flushing out of these markets as capital values have decreased and the level of gearing has has been too high, specifically at the client level, and, and put them into a situation where they've been forced sellers of their listed structures. 
which has created a lot of volatility in the asset class. And, you know, I mean, Carl can talk to how that volatility either hinders or benefits an overall portfolio. But ultimately, it has placed pressure on, onto some of those investors. And you've seen it coming through in price action. So interesting regulation in place that allows for the receipt of these distributions free of tax, gearing up inside the structure, a second level of gearing, and uh, provided you can you can pallet that risk over the medium to long term, I think that you've got an asset class that really lends itself to gearing. Just that discussion and you know that contribution, Mark, just makes me realize I should have listened a bit more in finance class when they were talking about Miller and Modigliani. Because I think a big part of what you're talking about, the level of leverage in your capital structure is a critical part of, I guess, our discussion here on property. Kyle, on the issue of volatility, and maybe just as we you know, touch on that, I'd like some of your thoughts also on some of the other risks that we certainly haven't spoken about. We've spoken about liquidity risks, inflation risks. We've spoken about uh, the role of gearing. But there would also, I guess, be other micro risks. I mean, if I don't maintain my property, the risks of location, the risks of, you know, capital flight from inner cities, something we've experienced in Johannesburg. And of course, I guess any tenure risks associated with some shifts in uh, any property regime. Yeah, that's where things become a little bit more complicated. And, and the devil's always in the details. You know, if you buy a residential property in the inner city and uh, you've got a bunch of people basically moving out of the city to more suburban areas or uh, smaller towns, what happens to your property? You know, you can't sell it at the same rate if there's no demand. And that's where Mark's earlier comments on uh, an agent telling you it's all about location, location, location. You can actually put a question mark against that statement because in this digital world where you're available 24-7 at any given point in time and at any location in time, does location really matter? When you're purchasing a property, and I'm talking purely a, a residential property, you have to take into account and think five, ten years time, will this property still be in demand? Uh, we, we've seen mega shifts in the world where uh, cities are evolving over time and everyone wants to be where there's a new buzz and a new atmosphere and there's, there's new things. So, so we've also got to consider infrastructure and, and how that's being built to, to determine where you should actually prepare to live for the next 10 years. And, you know, as a, a youngster who, who doesn't actually own his own property at this point in time, like that's a question I constantly ask myself. Is it worth actually buying a property or should I just rent for the next 10 years um, and invest in things like REITs, which gives you a very, very key component when considering property assets is liquidity. You know, if I put all my money in a REIT, I can exit that position almost in instantaneously at any point in time whenever I need the money. But if you purchase a property now and you want to sell it, you know, there's a time delay. You've got to find a willing buyer and your asset is only the, the only uh, va true value of an asset is what someone's willing to pay for it. So those are some of the key considerations when purchasing property. I think that point is such a critical one. I mean, this, this notion of exit risk, because we've spoken about quite a few risks here which balance out whatever returns we might expect, in particular, you know, uh, the liquidity benefits and the yields that come with that, but also some of the capital gains associated with that. Maybe let's just get some closing remarks. And uh, Mark, I'll start off with you and Kyle. 
we'll wrap things up uh, off with you around how we then harmonize all of what we've discussed today. And more importantly, if you had in 30 seconds, Mark, to give any advice, be it to me or anybody who's listening to this around making a foray into property, be it in the real sense or even in the listed instrument sense in the form of REITs, what would that advice be? Hi, Bongas. I still firmly believe you need diversification, you need location, and you need specialization. And, and the one aspect we haven't really spoken about is valuation. You know, every, everything that has risk needs to be assessed from a valuation point of view as well. So we've discussed what all of those risks are. And I think in the property space, it's a very uh, dynamic, fluid environment. We've got offshore opportunities, onshore opportunities. And I think that it's such a diverse and big market that to be a specialist as an individual in that whole space is a perilous exercise, I think. And uh, rather investing into a listed structure and or into a fund where somebody else is making decisions around what should be in that portfolio and when is it right to move in and out of certain assets is, is very important. And I think at its core, Property has an inflation aspect to it. It typically has performed better than it should, given the risks that we see associated with the property sector. And ultimately, I think that it is not necessarily a cornerstone of an overall portfolio solution, but definitely needs to, to be a part of the overall asset allocation that a client requires in delivering re returns. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that's very personal and, and everybody has a property, everybody understands property, but it's very difficult to get access to this broad global opportunity by sitting at home and buying one residential property or, or building out a Robert Kiyosaki passive portfolio. In the listed space, you get away from the, the frictional charges of owning property and, and tenant risk, uh, occupation risk, and all of these type of things. So if, I know that's much longer than 30 seconds, but if I had to steer you, I'd steer you towards a, a listed direction where you've got excellent management teams making good decisions with you, appropriate capital allocation and balance sheets, and overlay that with some kind of fund management experience. And I think you've got a solution that fits very nicely into an overall global portfolio and, and does diversify away a lot of the risks. Ultimately, at its core, though, macro factors will drive the returns of this asset class. So we haven't really spoken too much about interest rate cycle and its linkages back to property, but those are very key to some of the dynamics that play out in this space, both from a funding point of view and also from a valuation point of view. So there's a lot to be said about property. I know we've just touched the surface here. It's a very exciting space. And it's always dynamic and fluid. Don't give too much away because we still want many of the people who are listening to us might be potential clients to be giving you a call. So we don't want you to give too much away. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. Uh, Kyle, I can't say you've got 30 seconds. So um, yeah, I guess the best response and maybe 90. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Mark, as always, uh, covers quite a a wide range in, in this particular asset class. What I'd like to remind everyone about is that uh, property is one of the oldest asset classes in the world. 2000 years ago, people were still talking about buying uh, houses and, and businesses like farms, etc. And still today, it's, it's just as important. And in the future, I mean, you already can purchase plots on uh, 
other planets like the moon and soon to be Mars and maybe asteroids. So property will always be relevant. It will always be a real asset that you can see, feel and touch. And a lot of people find that very comforting um, in, in this new world of intangible assets. It, it's still an asset that brings some sense of uh, security to it. So it will always be a, a topic to speak of. And one of the more important factors in my view when when you think of property is how it fits in your overall portfolio that that obviously is a point that mark touched on and uh, when you look at your personal portfolio you don't want to to hold a single asset in it you don't want your most valuable asset to be to be one property because the risks there are quite immense so you want to kind of diversify with different assets different asset classes and try and ensure that that you're not putting too much capital at risk at end at any given point. Awesome stuff. Kyle Lazaro and Mark Falner, thank you to the pair of you uh, for your time. They are a portfolio manager and fund manager, respectively, both from Investec Wealth and Investments. Yeah, talking to us about uh, the importance of property as an asset class, but also the role, more importantly, of uh, property in multi-asset portfolios. The um, return risk matrix that is associated with this property class and or this asset class, I should rather say, and really a fascinating discussion, which brings us to the end of yet another informative session here. Uh, we do hope that these nuggets of insight that we've shared over the past few episodes are edging you a bit closer in your wealth creation journey to your aspirations. And please do visit Investec Focus to catch up on any of our previous episodes and to stay updated on some of our upcoming episodes in this part of the series. Till we meet again. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment and should not be taken as advice, guidance or recommendations. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, member of the JSE Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, an authorized financial services provider and a registered credit provider.